Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. For today's episode, we were honored to bring on Alice Faulkner Birch, the general editor of Desert Book's new collection of essays by Black American Latter-day Saints, My Lord, He Calls Me. The title of this book comes from an early Black American spiritual called Steal Away to Jesus, and the book shares contemporary experiences of Black Americans in the church and stories from every era of the Restoration. The essays found in this book are extremely personal. They're the type of stories that you'd only hear as a trusted friend. And Alice says that these stories are offered as a gift for other Black Americans and an invitation to white Americans. In the interview, she shared really important perspectives, not only about the experience of Black Americans in the church, but what it means for all of us to be part of the body of Christ and how we can more fully embrace the gifts of the Spirit, even charismatic ones like those shared in some of the remarkable stories in this book. And to give you just a little more background on Alice, she was baptized into the church in July of 1984. She served as the first African-American in the Chile-Santiago South Mission from 1987 to 1988. And then in 1989, she was called as the first African-American ordinance worker in the Salt Lake Temple. She has served the community as the secretary of the Utah chapter of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society, secretary for the Utah Black Roundtable, and a member of the annual Utah Juneteenth Committee. We're so grateful to Alice for coming on and for sharing this labor of love that she and so many others have had a part in. And with that, we'll jump right in. Well, Alice, thank you so much for joining us. It's truly an honor to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, of course. We thought maybe it would be an interesting place to start if you could describe the title of this book and where it where it comes from. Okay, I'd be happy to. Before I get into that, I just want to to thank you for inviting me to, oh, to be on your podcast. You've been on our list for a long time, so we're happy oh, to have you here. Very and the multiple recommendations you. from people asking us to have you on. Oh, thank yeah. you so much. I appreciate that. So the title of the book, as do all of the subtitles that are used throughout the book, come from an old Negro spiritual called Steal Away to Jesus, which I've included the words in the front of the book and then the original sheet music. The song was originally made popular by the Fisk gospel singers from Fisk University. And so the the words are, steal away, steal away, steal away to Jesus, steal away, steal away home. I ain't got long to stay here. My Lord, he calls me. He calls me by the thunder. The trumpet sounds within my soul. I ain't got long to stay here. Green trees are bending. Poor sinners stand a-trembling. The trumpet sounds within my soul. I ain't got long to stay here. My Lord, he calls me. He calls me by the lightning. The trumpet sounds within my soul. I ain't got long to stay here. And so the book, as as you've read the stories, I'm sure that you see how the Lord has called different people in different manners of the Black Americans who are in the book. And like the song talks about, he calls us by the thunder, he calls us by the trumpet, he calls us by the lightning. And so this song was was used as the basis for the book, and all of the subtitles within the book come from that song. I love that. I love that all the way through the book. 
Can you talk about the the genesis of the project and you know what maybe give us a little bit more about who the book is for and who the contributors are and just how it came to be in the first place? So in uh, early 2021, the book project manager called me from Deseret Book and and she said, we would like to do a book that is specifically for Black people in the church. And my first question was, so which Black people in the church do you want the book to be about? Because there are a lot of different groups of Black people, and the culture is different among each. And she said, oh, well, whatever you are. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm Black American, which means that my ancestry is from those who were in, who were brought here enslaved, and they stayed, and they created culture, and they created lives and livelihood, and so I'm descended from from those. And she said, "Okay, let's let's do that then." I, I went through a really difficult time accepting to do this book. I met with Laurel Christensen Day, the president of mm-hmm. of Deseret Book, and. She talked to me, and I I left with the promise that I I would seriously consider it, and I would pray about it, and I would talk to God whether this was something that was right for my life path or not. And I started praying, and um, about two nights later, I was awakened in the middle of the night, and. I was given this beautiful poem and I said, Oh, that's so pretty. I'll, I'll have to remember that in the morning and write it down. And I went back to sleep and the spirit shook me awake again. And it was that shake, shaking, shaking. And I woke up and the spirit said, you need to write this poem. And I thought, wow. Okay. God, for whatever reason, this is really important to you. So I got up. I keep a a pad of paper and a pencil or a pen by my bedside, and I wrote it down. And this was the poem, the one that's on page 90, when truth first spoke to me. And I'll just read the very beginning of it. When truth first spoke to me, it was in the morning sun when truth first spoke to me, not in a voice flowery or sweet or wispy like the cloud. It was firm, solid, tangible the most real thing ever I felt or saw or knew. And this was the poem. This is talking about conversion to God. This is talking about coming into God. And then a couple of nights later, I had another experience. And so with two poems, I asked, God, am I supposed to do these books and are, and are these poems for this book? And the answer came back very simply, yes. And then I was told, you'll be given more poems that must be included in this book. You will be given more. And he said, I promise I will be with you the whole way. And it was in that minute that I accepted to do this book. And so that's that's how the book came to be. <clears throat> I had no idea there was such a beautiful oh. origin story. Thank you so much for telling us. Yeah. Thank so, you for so then, saying it's beautiful. It, it really, yeah, it really is. So to say more about then what, what does the project become? What, what's your vision? The stipulation that I made is that our voice not be changed the way we talk. 
not be changed. I wanted our true voice to come through the book. And that was, that was one of my stipulations that our voice not be, not be edited out to be whiteified so that it sounded like white Americans were talking instead of black Americans talking. And, and that stayed true. So the book is a gift to black American members of the church. And it is an invitation to the white American members of the church. And people have said to me, well, why specifically an invitation to white American members? And I talk about that in the, in the introduction. And it's because the two groups upon, upon, upon U.S. soil that quite frankly talking, Satan keeps apart and keeps battling our white Americans and black Americans. And there's a very good reason for that. You know, if you keep these two groups apart, then you can never establish unity because it requires connection to establish unity. If you never establish connection, then we do not fulfill the commandment that Jesus Christ gave us to be united. Ye must be one, I say unto you. And if ye are not one, ye are not mine. I want to jump ahead to a question that we had planned for later that's related to this. When you think about some of those principles of a Zion community, you know, the all are alike unto God. And mm-hmm. if you're not one, you're not mine. I can see, and this is mentioned in the book, but some people use those types of principles, I think probably with good intentions, but not with great outcomes to make arguments like, well, I don't, you know, I don't see color. And so like, we're, we're all the same. We can just, we can just forget about, forget about race entirely. What, what's the problem in, in your mind with that line of thinking? I love how Lita Giddens addresses that in the opening essay in the book. She says that if you're colorblind and, and you say you don't see the color of my skin, then you are, you are, um, um, overlooking, you are disregarding, disrespecting, um, part of me. And how do you feel if somebody, you know, who says they like you, they care about you, but they totally disregard something that you consider an essential part of you? It doesn't feel very good, does it? You're saying, what I, what I want to see is I want to see you white. And that makes it easier for me, right? And that's where the falsehood and that's where the lies and that's where Satan comes into play is you, you've got to see color. It just means that, oh, okay, they are part of this community, you know? Yeah, I like that. It seems like. Maybe that gets back to this principle or this doctrine that we have of an all, you know, all knowing and all loving God. And even Jesus Christ, you know, who felt everything that we felt in order to truly love someone fully, you do need to, to acknowledge all parts of them. Exactly. You do. The blind, the blind people that Jesus healed, they needed healing. When we say to be like Jesus, part of that means that we have to look upon the whole of a person. You write this really powerful poem that sort of explores this. We didn't talk about it, but I would love for you to read it. Would you? Which one is it? It's page, let's see, 162 and 163. And it's so funny because somebody not too long ago posted part of this poem on social media. And and I thought, I'm not even going to say that they put a period where a period does not Mm. go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Jesus understands me, Black. Jesus understands me. When the leaders who promise to watch over look past me, Jesus understands me, Black, because he had to chastise leaders for scattering the sheep they were appointed to gather in. When I am accused of theft or lying or being too high falsely, Jesus understands me, Black, because falsifiers crucified him, because accusers said he committed blasphemy when he is the Son of the Almighty. When those who said they were my friends and had my back walked away, leaving me unprotected in the hurricane, Jesus understood me black, because the brother who spoke commitment and loyalty gave him to the tormentors with a kiss. When my knees are marked from kneeling long and my body ached from sleepless, prayer-filled nights, begging for protection or help or deliverance, Jesus understands me black, because in Gethsemane, every pore opened to spill understanding, compassionate blood, and on a hill called Calvary, where his hands marked, not once, but twice, in witness of him, a son who gave for all like me who kneel, and upon us he puts the title of my own, my child, my daughter, my son. Jesus understands me, black Jesus understands me. So what you should be picking up is a twofold. As a black American, Jesus understands me. But then the opening and closing line are one sentence. Jesus understands me, black Jesus understands me. Black Jesus understands me. I was really surprised that that poem stayed in there. I, yeah. I was so grateful it did. I can see why the period would screw that up. <laughs> it does, because okay. it gives a totally different, yeah. and it's not just that Jesus understands me black, but black Jesus understands me. Yeah. And, and I understand that that is something that a lot of people still have a hard time with, but Jesus was not a European person. He was a Middle Eastern person who looked closer to me than he looked to either one of the either one of you, and actually kind of very similar to you because he yeah. probably never got the white hair that I'm getting. <laughs> well, I've got a little bit of that too, but no, I am I am half Hispanic, so that you know I've got a little bit of that darker coloring as well. Yeah, but I I love the poem because I think it it sort of it sort of captures what what I think you were saying about this idea of colorblindness. Because I, I really do think when people try to say, I don't see color, what their the in, their intention is to say, I don't care. I don't care what color you are. Like, I love everybody. I think they're trying to just proclaim, like, I don't have, I don't have bad feelings toward any race. I think that's mm-hmm. what they think that they're, that they're saying. And so it's really helpful to understand the difference between that, between I'm going to, I'm ignoring your differences and I see them and I, I'm going to do everything I can to sit in the pain that these differences have caused sometimes by people who look like me and, and really doing work to understand what, what that means. But I think that gets dicey. Like that's so, that's harder to say. And so sometimes I think it gets really, it gets really trite. And, and so it's so, it's so helpful to think about what real empathy looks like. And so I love the Jesus poem, but I also just really appreciated the book because you tell story after story and it's not explicitly teaching about racism, but you feel so much love for the people who are experiencing really awful things. And it it is a sermon that just opens your heart up because 
because every single story is so personal and and you just feel so much love. It's you don't feel defensive, you don't feel like you're you're even being taught anything. You just feel you just feel open and you feel and you feel like you you want to just sit with the with this person and and hear more. And that's good because that's what I wanted you to feel as a white American. This is an opportunity to be surrounded in in a very literal sense though figuratively also by what is it 36 black americans the most that you've probably ever been around and to listen to them talk in a very comfortable manner for you mm-hmm. some pieces of those stories are difficult to share and difficult to hear and that you sit with those stories in in a private manner a private time for you and you listen to these stories and you're you're not forced to to appear a certain way because others are watching or to say certain things because others are listening. It's your private time. It feels like one particular part of our history that as members of the church, it's our, it's really our duty to wrestle with and to reconcile. And that it's, it, that's the priesthood temple ban. And I think that we hear a lot about the way the ban was lifted, but the things that were new to me in this book were the ways that people still suffered after that ended. You know, I was born in 1985. And so I felt like in some ways I came into the world thinking that this was a clean slate, like the ban was over and now we had, and now, and now so was the racism. And there were a lot of painful stories about the, the years that people suffered after the ban was lifted because, because other members of the church were still wrestling with it. And so I want to talk about that. But I also, if could you just talk about how the ban started? Because that's a story that was not, that is not very familiar, I think. So you got to read Paul Reeves' book. Let's talk about race and priesthood. You got to read that book. It's very small. And I'm really grateful to Paul Reeves for his, um, his constant deep dive into the history regarding that. And he's constantly finding new information. And in his new book, he shares some more new information that he uncovered. And every piece that he uncovers just shows more and more one thing. It was never a revelation from God. But see, I I knew that. I, I knew that years and years ago. I didn't have the proof I just had God's voice in my ear telling me that when I asked that this was never of him. He never gave any such revelation and that the day would come when all, not only the church, church wide would know, but all the people everywhere would know that he never said that. And the day did come, right? When, when Paul was the lead historian for the essay on race and the priesthood that the church leaders, the first presidency asked them to research and opened archives of journals, past presidents' journals to be read, to be scoured, you know, do is there a revelation that was received because they needed to know they had reached a point where they wanted to know if there ever was a revelation and it's never been found. There was never a revelation that said it is now time to withhold or remove the priesthood mm-hmm. from, from all the black people. It came to be because Brigham Young 
fell into the trap that so many white Americans fall into, which is the trap of racism. So if you have one drop of black blood, you are excluded. And then in 1978, President Spencer W. Kimball re-restored the priesthood in the full manner that God had intended it to be restored to the earth. Yeah. And Thank this you. is sort of a, a maybe a personal question, but I'm curious how it feels to you when you he- when you hear the explanation, which I, in my experience is still very persistent, that this was all this is all God's timing. And so really, I think part of that, the implication of that explanation is that there was, they believe, a revelation, you know, in 1852. See, what- I don't say this to people, but in my head, I think, oh, Bless your sweet little pea picking heart, honey. You just you just don't know God at all, do you? Mm. That that is what I think, and I feel so sorry for them. God made every person in His image. God made us in His image, man and woman. We're the only distinctions, right? Man and woman, only distinctions of the humans. Yeah, yeah. I. I want to just stay here for one more minute because I think that the the very complicated next thought for people who are like, Uh-oh. oh my gosh, this is a new, I, I've never looked at it like this. And it's so, it's, it's so helpful to hear you talk about that story so freely because I think people feel like they're tiptoeing. Like, am I allowed to say that Brigham Young made a racist decision? Like that feels so uncomfortable. But over and over in this book, there were stories of people who had these beautiful conversion experiences while simultaneously being able to completely dismiss the church's racist. Sometimes they were in the, sometimes this was during the priesthood temple ban and they were able to say, this is not God, but this is God. This, this, this part, this gospel is from God and they feel totally converted while, while being able to stay really true to their own relationship with God and recognize that there, there is something very human also happening here. And we're going to put this aside because this is not God, the God that I know. But, but talk about that to people who are feeling some real dissonance right now and saying, how could a prophet of God who is acting as a prophet of God have made a mistake that big? Well, it's interesting to just to add on really quickly, because it works, it works both ways. Like Mm -hmm. people, there are also people who either learn or are familiar with in some way the racist elements of the church, either present or past, and throw out the church entirely mm-hmm. because of that. So mm-hmm. I think it is a very, it's a very interesting. They're, they're either trying to make the racism work. Yes. And say this was a revelation. And therefore, saying, and therefore there is no church. racism in church or church yeah. culture mm-hmm. and keep the church. And yeah. so we're trying to like, you know, yeah. it, it's very difficult for a lot of people. I, I mean, our, myself included, I think in in a lot of different areas to hold both things at one time. And like Aubrey said, I think this book illustrates that so beautifully. And so we'd love for you to talk about that. I think I think it is difficult to hold two completely opposing beliefs that have different origins simultaneously, but to hold the belief that God led us to this church and to recognize that that the racism that exists among the congregations are not of God. Those are not two different beliefs, really, because they both come from the knowing what you said, Aubrey, the knowing God. And so those of us who shared our story, we, we know God. We know who He is. 
we know who he is. And racism does not come from God. What would you say to listeners who don't have a, a leadership calling right now, but who really are taking seriously this call to abandon attitudes of prejudice, like President Nelson asked in this recent conference? What what can they do to create safer spaces in their ward as just a lay member who's showing up on a Sunday? Live with intent. You know, it doesn't just happen. You do this with intent so that these qualities become part of you. Go outside your comfort zone, say hello, you know, acknowledge them as fellow fellow brothers and sisters in your ward, in, in your neighborhood. And I would say, read the book, take the opportunity to read the book and to hear these stories that, that Black Americans will not share with you in this very private manner that you have the opportunity to hear these stories, but really hear the stories, you know, recognize, learn what your biases are and recognize when you've put those filters in place, when you're listening to a Black American person speak. And don't be afraid to connect. Understand that connection to one another is what God wants us to do. He wants us to connect with one another. He understands the vitality of connection to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about the body of Christ. If your whole body were a hand, how could you hear? How could you see? How could you smell? You could not. But the body is made up of all these different parts, this being an analogy to the the church itself, right? Some of us are hands. Some of us are fingers on the hand. Some of us are arms. Some of us are feet. Some of us are ears. There are others who are nose and mouth, eyes, whatever, right? We're not meant to be exactly the same. Our differences strengthen us. We all come together with all of our differences to make us collectively strong, so much stronger than we can be separated. Thank you so much. I think that's a beautiful place to wrap up. We're just, we're grateful for your book and so thankful that you'd come and just talk us through all of it. Is there anything that we missed that you'd like to say before we wrap up? Can we talk about the charismatic gift? Yes. I said, I said to you when I came (laughs) in, I said, why, not why, but it's interesting (laughs) that white Americans keep approaching me with that charismatic gift. I'll say, I sent you some questions and one of them was, (laughs) Alice, like there's so many cool (laughs) stories in here about experiences with really charismatic experiences with the spirit, people having visions and hearing voices. And you were talking about being shaken by the spirit. And I'm like, what is that? So yeah. So maybe that's, that can be our jumping off point. I was, I am really curious about that. (laughs) And, and I do, I do want to talk about that. So I'm going to go to the etymology of the word charismatic. And I'm going to go back into the 1800s of the use of that word. Charismatic, special spiritual gift or power divinely conferred from God. In Doctrine and Covenants, in the Bible, there are all these scriptures that talk about the gifts of the Spirit. And for some reason, we have gone away from, you know, from believing that we can all have these gifts, but every single person can have these gifts. The purpose for the gifts of God are to help us while we're here. This life is hard. This life is really hard. Everybody, everybody is meant to have these gifts. 
So all of these people who are sharing their conversion stories and talking about, you know, these extraordinary experiences that happened, they really shouldn't be extraordinary Mm. because every one of us should be experiencing our use of the gifts of God in our daily lives as we intersect with one another. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that's just one more way that the, that our differences really benefit all of us, I think. Yes, because all the gifts are different. And I I think it's important that people seek after the gifts of the Spirit. We're encouraged to do that in scriptures. Seek after the gifts. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your your gifts with us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Alice. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for listening. And a big thanks to Alice for coming on the podcast. Her book, My Lord, He Calls Me, Stories of Faith by Black American Latter-day Saints is available on Amazon and at Desert Book. If Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really does help us to get the word out about Faith Matters and we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening and remember you can check out more at faithmatters.org.